Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and right up to the end of the season when the winners of the Champions Cup will be crowned at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and the fight for the Premiership title will be decided at Twickenham. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe and download now wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. From the Evening Standard in London, I'm David Marsland and this is The Leader. Mr Speaker, we are in a tough final stretch, made only tougher by the new variant, but this country will come together. And the miracle of scientific endeavour, much of it right here in the UK, has given us not only the sight of the finish line, but a clear route to get there. Boris Johnson vowed to finally free us from this wretched virus in a statement to the Commons. Part of that will be the opening of mega vaccination centres in sports stadiums and exhibition halls. But when we'll be free remains unclear, even though new lockdown rules are now law. Meanwhile, the Education Secretary's cancelled A-levels and GCSEs a few days after a U-turn on schools reopening. And that's got some wondering how secure Gavin Williamson's position will be in the next reshuffle. Our political editor Joe Murphy's here. Joe, Boris Johnson was trying to sound like the country's battling on through. These mega vaccination centres are a new front. What are they? Well, those are going to be mass vaccination centres which are capable of doing tens of thousands of people every week, certainly thousands every single day. And they're going to be set up in big sports stadiums and exhibition halls in all the major cities. There'll be seven in total, and the one that we can reveal will be in London is at the Excel Centre, where the NHS Nightingale, much underused, is currently sited. The Nightingale is effectively going to be split in half. Half will be a uh, recovery centre for people who've had COVID, and half will be a vaccination centre for those people who are vulnerable and at risk, and of course the NHS staff who look after them. So Boris Johnson's promising to finally rid us of this wretched virus, as he said, Joe. But there doesn't appear to be an end date, does there? There doesn't, and, and I thought it was noticeable in the Prime Minister's statement that he was toning down some of the colourful rhetoric that we're so uh, used to with the PM, um, some of the fun rhetoric, and he said it will be a sprint now after the marathon we've had. But he did caution MPs not to expect an instant solution or for this to be over in one day. Um, and I think he, he realises he has to manage expectations very, very carefully because you know, it's, it's, it's only a few weeks ago that people were talking about hugging grandma by Christmas because this magic vaccine was coming out. It'll make a massive difference to the death rate very quickly, but it ain't going to be magic. And yet, written into the new lockdown rules, which have now become law, is an end date, March 31st. I understand some people in the Conservative Party aren't very happy about that. Yes, and this was raised with the Prime Minister last night when he took part in a Zoom call with the 1922 committee, which represents Conservative MPs. And a few MPs said, hang on, 
are you looking at a lockdown lasting till March 31st? Um, to which he had to say no. Um, we're, we're looking at what I said, which is easing from mid-February, maybe into March, with a bit of room to spare. The just-in-case was, was also emphasised in his statement then, when, when just now when he said that schools may stay closed beyond the February half-term. Um, and that will have disappointed the MPs, who, for whom the U-turn on schools on Monday was actually one of, for them, the worst features of recent times, because people will take bad news they can't take these sort of chaotic-looking U-turns easily. And now after that U-turn on schools reopening, Gavin Williamson's also announced that GCSEs and A-levels are being cancelled. How secure, when it comes to the next reshuffle, is his position? Very insecure indeed, one former minister said to me. He'd be amazed if the Education Secretary was still in his post um, when the expected reshuffle finally comes around. Talking to MPs this week, you detect a bit of real disappointment that the U-turn happened, in particular parents who, let's face it, have to make very difficult choices in some cases if their kids can't be given the, the, the childcare we expect of school, um, especially working parents, and people who had made arrangements in the expectation of schools being back because of the Prime Minister's personal assurance and the Education Secretary's personal assurance on Monday morning, suddenly on Monday night had to find emergency provision for their children or else maybe take time off work and lose money. These are really hard, real-life, kitchen-table political problems um, and people obviously take it badly and MPs are saying, we've had too many um, fiascos, Ferraris, U-turns in the Department for Education. Think of the exams last year, which were another really botched and rushed and rather incompetent-looking U-turn. Another thing that senior MPs are saying about Mr Williamson is that maybe he lacks the heft to stand up for himself against other departments. One said to me that it's clear he's tried to keep schools open, um, and that's his saving grace. But it looks like he was walked over on Monday by the Department of Health and the Cabinet Office who were taking a more safety-first line that meant schools should close. We have full coverage of coronavirus developments in the Evening Standard newspaper and online at standard.co.uk. Coming up after the ads, after losing the White House, the Republicans appear to be losing the Senate. Is the party now starting to turn its back on Donald Trump? And don't forget to subscribe. We were told that we couldn't win this election. But tonight, we prove that with hope, hard work, and the people by our side, anything is possible. In the once red state of Georgia, Reverend Raphael Warnock started the Senate election run as the underdog against Republican Kelly Leffler. In the end, he scraped a victory by less than 1% of the total vote. It was even tighter in the state's other runoff election, but at the time of recording, the Democrat candidate John Ossoff was ahead of David Perdue. It appears the Senate is about to be handed over to the Democrats, and already some Republicans are laying the blame on Donald Trump. Julie Norman from UCL's Department of Political Science is here. Julie, first of all, how big would taking control of the Senate be for Joe Biden? Well, David, the party that controls the Senate 
does have a big influence on the presidential administration and setting both the legislative agenda and really influence the presidential agenda, at least for the first two years. The majority party um, really has control over the votes that come to the floor of the Senate, so essentially what bills get voted on. They also have control over the different committees within the Senate. And for simple majority votes, so for appointing cabinet members, for appointing judges, for appointing ambassadors, um, the majority party can can secure those votes with, with just a simple vote. It's important to note in the U.S. Senate, though, for most meaningful legislation, the votes require 60 votes. Democrats at most will have 50. So this isn't going to be a carte blanche for Biden to bring in really any kind of sweeping legislative agenda, but it will be enough for him to at least set the course in a way that he wouldn't be able to with Republican-controlled Senate. George is really interesting because it is a deep red Republican state. What's happened there? Georgia is a fascinating state. It's one where we really see the mashup of the so-called Old South and the New South. So for the last several decades, Georgia has gone strongly Republican. But we saw just in the presidential election in November that Biden was able to squeak out a win in Georgia. And that was largely because of two things. One was mobilizing more moderate of voters in the suburbs around urban areas like Atlanta, and also with very strong voter registration pushes, especially among Black voters. So um, this has been led by um, a a former gubernatorial candidate, Stacey Abrams, who has managed to increase Black voter registration by 25% from 2016 to 2020. And about a third of the voters in this past election of the runoffs were, were thought to be Black voters. So that demographic mobilizing has shifted Georgia politics significantly. Yeah, Stacey Abrams is getting a, a lot of a lot of praise right now from Democrat supporters. Uh, over the, those concerns that there had been voter suppression in the area in Georgia, she really drove people out and made people vote effectively, didn't she? That's exactly right. And what we see in Georgia and some other um, southern states in the United States is a history of quite overt voter suppression in the early 20th century. A lot of that shifted to other means in the late 20th century that weren't so overt, but simply made it harder for people to vote, um, requiring certain kinds of IDs, um, sometimes having polling centers that were not easily accessible to people. So they weren't overtly suppressing, but weren't really facilitating votes either. And Stacey Abrams has been very active in calling attention to those issues and also just getting individuals to register and come out to vote on election day. So the Republicans have lost the White House. They've lost Georgia. They've lost the Senate under Donald Trump. How is the GOP's relationship going to change with Mr. Trump as he leaves the White House? Well, David, this is one of the real crucial outcomes of this runoff is not just who controls the Senate, but what it says about the Trump influence on the party. Both of the Georgia candidates who were Republicans aligned quite strongly with Trump. They doubled down on him and his messaging, trying to get the support of his base. And it's looking like that has, in fact, backfired, alienating moderate Republicans 
alienating independents, and perhaps even keeping some of Trump's own supporters from the polls who were, um, you know, kind of taking his claims seriously about voter fraud. So moving forward, it's really going to be a reckoning for Republicans for how to deal with that. Will they continue to lean into the Trump messaging and rhetoric and style, or will they see this as a reason to start pivoting away from that, restore some of their more traditional approaches and values? And we might see a split in the party because of that. Yeah, I was wondering how big a risk is there of perhaps even a new party emerging from this? There's certainly talk of that. My guess is it will be more of a kind of soul searching, a definitely a rift within the party between those who are already kind of lining up with Trump and those who are not. But with the two party system in the United States being really quite set for you know several centuries now, the likelihood of the Republicans splitting into two parties that would likely split the vote is still somewhat rare. Um, we'll probably more see a reshaping of the party, um, a lot of inward and outward discussion of what it might look like going forward. But the party breaking up would still be a pretty far step to go. We still have those electoral college confirmations to come. Donald Trump thinks that Vice President Mike Pence can uh, effectively veto the whole thing. You're a US politics expert, Julie. Can he do that? You know, David, Mike Pence's hands are really tied today. Even if he wanted to disrupt this process, his role in this really is just to literally read out the votes. There's not much that he can do. Um, he has reportedly told the president this in the last day or two, trying to emphasize that this is his role. And this whole time, really since November, Pence has been kind of walking this, this tightrope between not alienating Trump, but also uh, kind of keeping his own options open as well. What we can expect from him today is, of course, to accept and even welcome some of the challenges that Republicans, um, some of the Republicans are going to be mounting. But for him individually to be able to change the outcome is something that's really just beyond his capacity to um, in this role. So finally, we're still expecting Joe Biden to be inaugurated as president on January 20th. We are indeed, David. There might be some delays today, but the inauguration will go forward in two weeks. There's more US politics analysis and commentary at standard.co.uk and that's the leader. We're back tomorrow at four. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and right up to the end of the season when the winners of the Champions Cup will be crowned at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and the fight for the Premiership title will be decided at Twickenham. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe and download now wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.